Good morning, and uh, welcome to uh, the Leewood campus of Christ Community. We're glad you're here today. It's a beautiful day, don't you think? Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, again, we are just delighted if you've been around Christ Community a long time or you're visiting today, uh, please know you're welcome. We love the fact that you are here, and uh, we consider it a great privilege. We hope you sense the presence of Christ here, the one we sing about, the one we love, and the one we adore, the affection of our heart. One of the singers and songwriters of a generation that I think profoundly spoke the heart of a generation was Carole King. Carole King's tapestry album sent her to heights entertainers seldom reach, massive stardom. And uh, as a young woman, Carole King was a woman who was not only beautiful, she had it all. She had wealth unimaginable at her age, she had friends galore, and she had a wonderful husband, her first husband, Jerry Goffin. Seems like Carole King had it all. Yet on this album that, again, is a Hall of Fame kind of work you would find at the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there's a song that Carole and Jerry wrote, two very happy hearts, restless, wondering if lasting love and true happiness would always be theirs. The song is entitled, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Or you might have heard the language, there's lots of debate, will you still love me tomorrow? And just in case you're wondering, I did grow up in the 70s and I heard this millions of times. And uh, I won't sing it, okay? You know, I have, I have mercy for you, I just want you to know, but I, I, could, I could just start singing it because it's such a part of my journey. But I'd like to give you, and some of you know it well, you know it by heart, But I'd like to remind us of some of its most poignant words. Carol and Jerry wrote, Tonight you're mine completely. You give your love so sweetly. Tonight the light of love is in your eyes. But will you love me tomorrow? In the song, perhaps the most penetrating question is one that is raised just a little bit further in the lyrics. And that is, as you hear Carole King sing this song, her heart is worn on her sleeve. She says, is this a lasting treasure or just a moment's pleasure? Singer Lana Del Rey speaks to a new generation, a remarkable singer In her hit song, Young and Beautiful, and if you saw the 2013 movie, The Great Gatsby, this song is a part of the soundtrack. Let me give you some of the words that echo across her heart in a new generation. We've seen the world. We've done it all. Had my cake now, diamonds, brilliant, and Bel Air now. Hot summer nights, mid-July. When you and I were forever wild... The crazy days, the city lights, the way you'd play with me like a child. Will you still love me when I am no longer young and beautiful? Will you still love me when I got nothing but my aching soul? Cross the generations, the well-crafted words of Carol King, The well-crafted words of Lana Del Rey resonate deeply within each one of us. But why is that? 
Why is that? What is it about these artists' expressed longings that even stirs the most satisfied heart? Could it be that when life is going great for each of us, when we perhaps are young and beautiful, even when we are living a seemingly charmed life, don't we wonder how long this really will last? Are not our hearts and minds and souls tormented by the question, when will our crafted happiness run out? And what happens when our happiness runs out? Today we encounter a story in the first century in the Gospel of John that speaks across time into the restless wanderings of a satisfied heart. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 2. John is in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's pretty easy to find, whether it's electronic or paper. Last week, we began our conversation in John, chapter 1, and we looked at how Jesus listens and addresses the skeptical heart. And as we turn the page and turn to John, chapter 2, we want to probe two questions, two underlying questions that even the most satisfied heart inevitably asks. And these two questions frame the architecture of our conversation this morning. The first question is, is there more to life than this? And the second question is, will my happiness last? John introduces us in a rather nonchalant way to this story. In verses 1 and 2, he begins with these words. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, our story begins with Jesus, his disciples, and his mother attending a big party. Now, we're going to see how the text clues us into how big and important and prominent this party is. But for now, we understand that for John, he wants to frame the whole story, you'll notice in a literary form, highlighting Canaan of Galilee. It begins the story and it ends it. And it perhaps is the reason is because Jesus and Mary and his early disciples were not from Cana of Galilee. Jesus and Mary were from Nazareth. And the question perhaps that arises in our mind is why Cana of Galilee? Why is Jesus there? Why is Mary there? They don't live there. So there probably was a, some, some kind of familial connection with this family. The inner circle of his disciples are attending as well. Now, I have performed many weddings. I love weddings. Last night, we had a delightful wedding in our Brookside uh, campus. Um, and it's one thing to plan a service for a wedding. You know, I'm paid to do something, right? <laughs> and uh, so I love crafting weddings. But I've never been a part, or should I say, looked over the shoulder of my wife and my daughter of planning a wedding until my daughter Sarah was married. My goodness, there's a lot to that, right? I mean, if you've ever planned a wedding, you know, that's a big deal. And that's just for a few hours of an important ceremony and the reception. You want it all to go right. It's a massive thing, and sometimes, frankly, it's joyful, but what? If you've done it, it's stressful. But can you imagine entering into the first century world, planning a wedding party as one of the most prominent families in the town for a wedding party that lasts not hours, but days? perhaps up to a week. 
Imagine hungry and thirsty friends and neighbors come. And, and they stay at the party. And if the party's good, they stay longer. So it's a sort of a catch-22, got it? And the family and the bridegroom culturally were to pick up the tab. So this is an amazing story. What a party it must have been for this prominent family in this small town of Cana. How do we picture it in our context? Well, let me bring two images together, can I? <laughs> because to understand its cultural contours, we have to understand that this is a big deal in the town. This is a big deal. Once a year, once of a lifetime. It's big time. It's, it's, it's sort of like a royal wedding on a little smaller scale. All the pageantry, all eyes are on the family. But also with it, picture the Porticalis family of the big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> all the family members, grandma, grandmas, all the dynamics of a clan. That's what it's like. And the party must have started out with great excitement and a big bang. Can you imagine? It's like, everybody, yeah, it's finally got here. That's the picture. And everybody must have enjoyed the food and wine. Old parties, no matter how good they are, how big they are, how important, how splashy they are, sort of hit that moment, don't they? Where satisfaction is diminished. The initial exuberance of the party sort of wears thin. I mean, how many times can you talk about the weather and sports? You know, all, all that sort of kind of hits this moment where... It's just not as good as you thought it was going to be. The good feelings sort of go, and there's this emptiness in your soul, this longing for more. In this story, we have a guest in this moment. A satisfied heart, for sure, but they're inevitably longing for more, at least seems it to me. And the satisfied heart, your heart and my heart, when it's satisfied, still longs for more. You know that. You've experienced it. I have when the newness is over. When the success is achieved, you strive so hard for. When the diploma is yours, after all, finally. When that victory has been savored for just a moment. When the children have been raised. When your career is completed. See, we are left standing in the confetti of success. And we are still wondering in our hearts. Is there more to life than this? This is the question the satisfied heart asks. Inevitably, even the most satisfied heart asks for that. There's lots of discussion through American history, but I believe this is true. I don't think it's hypocritical. It's quoted many, many places. Um, I think it's at least true. But Henry Rockefeller, you know that super tight and rich Bill Gates of his era, <laughs> was asked by a reporter one day, how much is enough, Henry? And his famous response is, just one more dollar. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant medieval literature professor at Oxford, says it in such a beautiful way of the restless heart that is satisfied, but once more. He describes it this way. He said, the human heart longs for something more. It's like the scent of a flower we have not yet found. The echo of a tune we have not yet heard. News from a country. We have not yet visited. We are desiring creatures. And C.S. Lewis says, it's not the problem we desire too much. We desire too little. 
See, inevitably, we feel a stirring restlessness, no matter how good our life is. We want more, don't we? And we wonder if there is more. And Lewis challenges us that there is joy available to us, a joy that does not leave us asking for more, but satisfies us and keeps satisfying us with unimaginable, undiminished delight. And the question is, a question in the hearts of the guests of this wedding at some point, is where is this kind of joy found? Where is the party that doesn't let us down? Now, the guests at the wedding had no idea the crisis brewing in the kitchen. And if you've been in a hotel or a restaurant or you've catered or you've hosted a bunch of people at Thanksgiving, you know the greatest fear, the greatest day of hell on earth is when you run out. Imagine the size of this party. The crisis is brewing and John enters us into it in a very magical way. He's an eyewitness after all. And in verses 3 through 5, all of a sudden we hear Jesus, uh, his mother, come to him and say, they have no wine. You get a sense that the panic is beginning to set in. And how Jesus' mom is a part of this, she's picking it up and she's bringing it to Jesus. She's trying to help in any way she can. And for the host's family to want to run out of wine, it was not just, uh, you know, a, a sort of a little annoyance. It was a major social miscue that would linger with their family for a lifetime in the community. See, almost every wedding has some snafus of some kind. Every wedding has memories. <laughs> I could give you several, but I won't do all of them. You know, you have groomsmen who faint or a wardrobe malfunction of somebody's. And those are, well, they make a wedding rich and memorable. Right after you get over some of the frustration. This story is different. The host of the family and the bridegroom are facing an Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem moment. And notice that Jesus' mother doesn't say, "Uh, Jesus, we're beginning to run out of wine. She says, we're out. And again, you've catered or served people. You know when you start seeing the food running out and people still hungry, you kind of water the soup a little bit. You can kind of do that. Stretch it. There ain't no stretch in this moment. And notice Jesus' response to his mother. English translators have basically, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. And across our cultural landscape, we miss something that's going on here. Jesus is not being dismissive or condescending to his mother. The word woman in this context is like ma'am. Now let's remember that this is a cryptic conversation that John is right there hearing. It's an urgency, right? And when something's urgent, like, get it quick. But underlying this cryptic urgency is an amazing relationship Mary has with Jesus that allows impregnated meaning brought into the cryptic language. Let's remember that Luke's gospel tells us that Mary had a unique relationship with Jesus. Angel Gabriel gave more knowledge to Mary than anyone. 
about this unique virgin birth child. Remember? His person and his mission. And it says early on, Mary pondered them in, his, in, her, in her heart. Can you imagine in Nazareth the years of conversation that Mary had with Jesus? The remarkable relationship they had. So when Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come, he is simply affirming her intimate and extraordinary knowledge of who he is and his ultimate mission. And she knows it's going to bring pain to her heart. And she is going to wrestle this all the way to the foot of the cross. What surprises us here is Mary's response. As a mom, she doesn't challenge her son's words. All she does is express amazing trust and confidence, complete trust in her son. Now, remember, the gospel of John is often called the gospel of belief. Some 89 times the word belief is explicitly stated in the text, and John will end the story with belief. But here Mary is modeling faith, complete faith in her son. And in the original language, there's one word she says. It's not a phrase. She says, in an imperative urgency, do it! And when Mary said, do it, you did it. It's a picture. And the servants jumped to it. Now, notice John's literary lens shifts to these six water pots. Don't miss that. In the cultural context, most water pots were small. They were carried on heads or shoulders by servants. These were massive. And we have a hard time knowing if they're 120 gallons. Have you ever lifted a 10-gallon jar, let alone 120? What does this tell us? John's cue is culturally that this was a big wedding. This was a very prominent wedding. And these were used for purification. Ceremonies. Wow. This is stress on steroids. And Jesus tells the servants, fill out the pots. And notice what the servants do. The text is very explicit. They not only fill it up, they fill it, literally the text says, to the brim. Why? Because the servants are anticipating something extraordinary. Isn't it amazing? And Jesus says, okay, taste it. Draw it out. Isn't it amazing that Jesus' first recorded miracle, the first people who know about him are the who's that of the world? Servants who taste the most amazing wine they've ever tasted in their life. And they take it to the master of the feast. Now, if I have a you know, perverted sense of imagination, just forgive me, okay? But every time I read this, it reminds me of Julian Fellowes' brilliant character in Downton Abbey. This is Mr. Carson. That's, put a beard on him. That's who he was. Start shirted, <laughs> managed the Crowley household. This was his big moment to shine. Strict precision, unflinching protocol. This is who he is. And there's little question in my mind that the servants really hustle to him fast. And what a miracle it is. Nobody doubts this. Everyone knows. Jesus says, instantaneously taken wine and made it the most awesome wine, or water, made it the most awesome wine just like that. And for some of us, yes, that challenges our thinking in a modern world. 
It challenges our mind, but I want to suggest that it also promises to our hearts something. That we can experience this kind of joy. The joy that Jesus gives is not an idealistic mirage for the sentimental of heart, but it is a reality that Jesus brings to your broken life and my broken life and to your sin-ravaged world and my sin-ravaged world. In John's story of the wine running out at the wedding, there is woven into the fabric of this brilliant narrative the second question of the satisfied heart. And that is, will my happiness last? Or will it run out? When the wine of our crafted happiness of our life runs out, what will we do? Where will we turn? It can run out in the vulnerable age of adolescence. Those inquisitive years of young adulthood, the empty feelings of the midlife crisis, the empty nest. When the happiness we have crafted, our lives that we have clung to, abandons us, just like that. Our happiness may be shrouded in the dark fog that comes with tragedy in life, with loss and grief. And it comes from the wine of success of wealth or pleasure or good times with friends now only becomes a distant and fading memory. We all wonder if our happiness will last. Yet the truest test of a happy life, of a truly satisfied life, is not found in the early years of our life. It is found in the sunset years of our life. I was reminded of that this week. This week I had the privilege of being in another city, visiting with truly an extraordinary person. One of the greatest generations, poster boys. A very successful businessman. Mid-80s. Wise as an octogenarian and insightful and a crisp mind. During our conversation at lunch, I asked him one question. And this was the question. I said to him, what is the greatest concern you have for our nation and in the younger generations that are following you? I thought he would pause. And he immediately looked at me and said this. He said, my greatest concern, Tom, is that our country and our people do not know where a meaningful and satisfied life is found. And I was stunned by the wisdom of his answer. See, the wisdom of the greatest generation octogenarian echoes the brilliant psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor who wrote one of the most classic books, Man's Search for Meaning. And Franco makes the point that we as human beings are fundamentally meaning creatures. And he writes, in essence, people have the means to live, but do not have the meaning for which to live. Oz Guinness, a friend of Christ's community and a wonderful social commentator, 
describes our fragilely crafted happiness as running out in our culture, and this is what he says, we have much to live with and far too little to live for. In the midst of material plenty, we have spiritual poverty. So where do we find true happiness? Where's the party that never wears down? Where's the wine that never runs out? John begins his gospel telling us and pointing us to the one who gives us joy and wine and happiness that never grows old, never runs out. That's how he sets the trajectory of his brilliant gospel. I just love how this story ends, don't you, in verses 9 through 11. The master of the feast, named Carson again, he's quite the character to me. He tastes this wine, and can you imagine... He's just caught because he's so relieved. I mean, he's had the greatest crisis of his life. He's got wine now. So this, imagine this intense relief. But he's also completely surprised, and he's simply dumbfounded. And in the text, in verse 10, there's this veiled protest to the improper and propriety of this protocol. And he summons the bridegroom and lets him know what's on his mind. Look at verse 10. He says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Why did you do this? That's the idea. How could you do this to me? See, if there's one word that describes Jesus, it's joy. Surprising joy. And notice in the text, the wine is abundant and it is high quality, and it's flowing freely. This is not the Trader Joe's two-buck chuck or whatever it is now. (laughs) No one throws a party like Jesus. The creator of the universe is not into scarcity. He is into lavish abundance and grace and goodness and love. When Jesus throws a party, it's awesome. Let's remember... Then in John's broader literary thread, at the end of chapter 20, he wants us to believe. He's arranging these stories that we would place our trust and faith in the one who can give us true life. And he's saying, if you trust Jesus from beginning to end of the gospel, you will not be disappointed. Your wine of happiness will not run out. That's what he says all through the gospel. And there are other layers of thread that John weaves, certainly from the Old Testament. This is not a new idea. This idea of wine has another layer of meaning because in the Old Testament, the idea of wine painted a picture of flourishing and joy and abundance. When the Messiah would come, there would be amazing wine. This was the picture of the prophets, and Jeremiah was one of them. Jeremiah wrote these words in Jeremiah 31, 12, the Old Testament. It painted forward to this. They shall come and sing aloud in Zion, that means Jerusalem. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, notice, over the wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. See, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book to the end, increasingly points our longing hearts to the indescribable joy of a future day when the Messiah will make all things new. And we will enjoy the new heavens and new earth. Isn't it interesting? The same person who wrote this gospel finishes the last book of the Bible with giddy delight. He must have chuckled when he pens these inspired words 
in Revelation 19 of this grand wedding that is coming. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where the wine will never run out. Amen? That's what he's saying. So often we settle for such mediocre joy and happiness when Jesus offers us the life we were created to live, the life we long to live, the happiness our heart longs for. And then through his first miracle, Jesus says to us, come and see. And he also says, come and taste what I really offer. Sadly, we don't realize what we're missing. I was reminded of this recently. I grew up, you know, in a single-parent home, and one of my survival techniques was going to the cupboard and... I think it was Kraft then getting a box of mac and cheese. You had a little bit of milk and you had a meal. It wasn't too bad, but I just wasn't into mac and cheese. So what's with mac and cheese? But something happened to me recently on a trip I was taking that changed my mind completely. <laughs> I was traveling in another city and some of my friends invited me to this beautiful restaurant for dinner. It was really a nice restaurant, and when I walked in, I thought, oh, I'm going to get a great steak or get fish or, you know, something like that. When I sat down, after we talked about it, I said, Tom, this place has the best mac and cheese in the country. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I didn't say it out loud, I almost said it. I said to myself, mac and cheese, you got to be kidding me. But thankfully, I zipped my lip. The waiter came to the table, said a few things, she said, hey. We have the best mac and cheese in the country. I thought, this is a conspiracy. (laughs) But I listened. Now, I am a pattern person. Translate, rut. (laughs) But something came over me to go for it. I was brave. And I ordered the mac and cheese. Couldn't believe I did it. But when it came to me and the smell and what I saw, I was like, wow. When I tasted it, it was like culinary heaven. I'm like, mac and cheese, where have you been all my life? (laughs) I had no idea what I was missing all those years. That's exactly how it is with Jesus. The joy, the wine of happiness, the undiminished delight that Jesus offered and offers. There's nothing like it. The psalmist of old in Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, the word good is awesome, not vanilla. Jesus can take the joy you experience in the normal every day and make it gooder. Can I say that? Without Jesus... Joy and happiness inevitably run out. So have you tasted the new wine of true happiness that Jesus offers you? It's a wine of joy that never runs out, friends. It's a wine that ages with time and gets better. So let me challenge us as I close with three brief questions. First is, are you thirsty for more? In many ways, your life may be charmed right now. It may be satisfying. But I want to suggest in the moments at the end of the day when you lay your head on the pillow, when you slow down long enough to reflect on your busy life, you ask the question, is there more? Let me say, Jesus is more. 
Jesus is where more is. And Jesus says it in his most famous sermon, blessed, or you could use the word happy. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That means for me, for him, for they shall be satisfied. Secondly, do you long for true happiness to last? Not one of us knows what tomorrow will bring today. Life brings mountaintops of exhilaration, often followed by deep valleys of heartache and sorrow. And one of the most glaring ironies of life is that those who pursue happiness do not find it. Psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, again, mined this from the most brilliant person who ever walked on the planet, Jesus himself. In all his studies, Frankel said this. He said, if happiness is your goal, you will not find it. And he called happiness the side effect of loving another person. If you long for happiness to last, look to Jesus. Give your life to him. Love him with all you have. That's where lasting happiness is found. The goodness of the gospel reminds us that Jesus came into this broken world. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God. He rose victoriously from the grave. He defeated death once and for all. He will one day return, and he will set this world to right. The happiness Jesus brings is not a moment's pleasure. It's a lasting treasure. So third, are you pointing others to this lasting treasure? Are you pointing others to the wine of joy that will truly last? If you've tasted the joy of Jesus, does your life and words point others to the true wine of happiness their hearts are longing for too? Does the new wine of joy in your life make others curious and thirsty? How do you taste to those around you? Jesus surprises us with true joy. And he has left for the church, for us, a foretaste of that. Author and friend Amy Sherman, everywhere she goes, and I often speak with her and share the same stage with her because we're in the same kind of context. Everywhere Amy goes, she carries this little pink spoon from Baskin Robbins. Everywhere she goes, everywhere I hear her speak, she lifts it up. A pink spoon at Baskin-Robbins is not the real full thing. It just gives you a sample for what is to come. When we gather around the Holy Communion table, this is Jesus' pink spoon for us. He allows us this appetizer, a foretaste of what is to come. Every time you participate in the Lord's table, by faith, you are getting a foretaste of an incredible feast that's coming. The invitation to the wedding feast that is coming. Even if you're in the midst of sorrow today, a difficulty or whatever, Jesus invites you to sip the coming joy. There's only one love, only one feast, only one thing that can really give your heart all that it needs and they await you at his table. In his death and resurrection, Jesus brought new wine of joy that he is saving the best for later. And we will enjoy him forever in the new heavens and new earth. In holy communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. We get to see and taste and touch the good news. Jesus instituted this. He said, take, eat, this is my body. Drink from the cup, for this is 
the new blood of my covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. Let us pray. Lord, we long for the joy that you can only bring. We confess we have been looking in all the wrong places for true joy and happiness. Grant to us in your grace, through the atoning blood of your Son, forgiveness of sin. Holy Spirit, bring new life and true joy to our hearts. Bless the elements of the bread and vine now, and may we taste and see the Lord is good. And may our appetites be whetted for what is to come. Amen. At Christ's community, we practice open communion. That means you do not have to be a member of Christ's community to come to the Holy Communion table, but it does mean that you've embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So I'd like you to find a table near where you're sitting. Go to that table, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, may this morning be a moment of conversation you have with him. I encourage you, if you aren't ready to come to the table, to sit where you are and to think about the message and talk to God and seek him, and he will find you. So those who are in Christ, please come and celebrate at the Lord's table. Thank you.